When I was a kid, I always felt a little bit on the outside. Um, my parents didn't send me to the local elementary school. They sent me to a private school that was 30 minutes away. So I didn't really connect with the kids in my community uh, and go to school with them. And then the kids at the school 30 minutes away, they all lived in that area, which is the town of Annapolis. And I didn't really know many of the kids in that area as well. So it always felt like me trying to find my way fitting in. Uh, my dad was a pastor at a church, and behind the church there was a baseball field. And one of the things my brother and I both loved is we both loved baseball. And yet, unfortunately, in those days, uh, church took place on Wednesday nights, and that's when the games met. And so we spent a lot of non-Wednesdays watching games, but not able to participate. Again, felt like we were on the outside looking in. When I moved to eighth grade, uh, my parents moved me to a different school uh, in the Glen Burnie, Maryland area, and one of the tricky parts about coming into a school in eighth grade is everybody already has established those friends in sixth or seventh grade, and now you're the outsider once again coming in. It continued even for me when I got into, when we moved in this area, I didn't know when we moved in this area how many people lived in this area and had grown up in this area and lived in this area all their lives until I got to meet people and found generations of people that lived in the same uh, community or the same area and my family spread all over the place and and I, I found this sense of always wanting to fit in, always wanting to be a part and everyone, everyone wants to be a part. Everyone wants to fit in. No one wants to feel like they're the odd duck. Um, and especially as kids, we want to feel like we're a part. And kids and teens, we do all kinds of crazy things to try to make sure we fit in, to try to make sure we're a part of what's going on. And that doesn't end when, when we grow out of being kids or students. It goes on through all of life where we want to feel like we're a part. We want to feel like we're included. We want to feel like we belong and that's one of the things that happens in the context of a church. When people come to a church, they want to feel like they belong. And we talk all the time, what does it look like to move from the church I attend to it being my church, a place that I belong? One of the things that we do regularly is we ask those who are guests, tell us about your experience and what did you see and observe. And they give us some good feedback. Um, but again, the feedback is coming to the church leadership, so it's, it's probably um, uh, it's a little kind and gracious, which we're grateful for. Um, and so last fall, we hired someone to come in and uh, do what was often called a secret shopper experience and to come and just be here and tell us what their experience was like. And they said a lot of amazing things. They said there's a lot of great things about CCC, just like you heard Tristan talk about when he came here the first time and experienced some things that were different, that were impactful, that were inviting, even though he's visited churches all over the Northeast. And this individual said there's a lot of great things about being here at CCC, and it's a very friendly place if you know someone. But if you don't know someone, it can feel quite lonely. And those words were hard to swallow, but we needed to hear them, and we needed to look into that and dig into that and say, what is it about our experience that can allow some to feel incredibly welcome and others to feel lonely? Because we don't believe that's what God wants for our church, um, for people that walk through our doors. This morning, we're going to look at a story in the life of Jesus, in which Jesus takes an outsider's view, looking at the place of worship in the first century, called the temple. And an outsider's view, a 30,000 foot view if he would, and he speaks to the Jewish leaders about their experience. And he gives them a view that they can't have because they're right in the middle of it. We've been in a series entitled Simply Jesus, and 
in the book based on the book of Mark. And Mark is penned, uh, Mark is writing down the accounts likely given to him by the apostle Peter, who was with Jesus day in and day out for three years. And he gave Mark these accounts, and Mark wrote them down in a very short, abbreviated gospel, the shortest of all the gospels. And he basically said, I wanted Mark in his writings, wants people to understand two things. He wants them to understand, first of all, that Jesus was coming as a king. And as a king like no other king. As a king who could do things that no other king could do. Like heal the sick and raise the dead. But he was also coming as one who was going to suffer on a cross. And in doing so, deliver all of mankind. Mark takes more time than any other writer to spend on the last week of Jesus' life. And that's where we're going to dive in this morning. And we're going to spend time over the next four to five weeks leading up to Palm Sunday and Easter looking at the last events of Jesus' life. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, that's where we're going to be this morning. Mark 11, it's page 823, and the Bible's there in your seat, um, right in the seat rack in front of you if you don't have a Bible along, or you can follow along in your phone or tablet um, and follow along on an app. So Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to be. Over the last couple weeks, we've been leading up to this, and, and a few weeks ago, Roddy challenged us that following Jesus will cost you something. Not following Jesus will cost you everything. And then last week, I asked you this question, will you intentionally serve or expect to be served? And I added at the end of this, someone who doesn't deserve to be served. Someone who doesn't deserve to be served. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. There in Mark chapter 11, verse 1, it says, as they approached Jerusalem and Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. So they're at the Mount of Olives, and they're about ready to go through the Kidron Valley into the city of Jerusalem. And if you were to stand at the Mount of Olives today, you would have this view. This is up on the top of the Mount of Olives, and you can actually see this in person. If you travel there to Jerusalem with me next year, there's an opportunity for you to do that. Um, But we're looking down in the Kidron Valley, and then you can see the city of Jerusalem, the Golden Dome, the Dome of the Rock, which we're going to talk about in just a few minutes is there on the other side of the valley. So that's where the disciples are with Jesus. And while they're over there at the Mount of Olives, Jesus gives them some instructions. He says, go to the village ahead, and as you go there, find a colt tied there, which no one's ridden, untie it, and bring it here. And he says, if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord needs it, and he'll get it back to you in a little bit. It would be like me asking two of the staff guys, Roddy and Tim, to go to Lancaster Subaru Tell the owner of the dealership there, John needs to borrow a 2019 Subaru, one that's never been driven, sitting on the show. He needs to borrow that, just loan it to him for a little bit, and he'll bring it back when he's done. Now, what's surprising me is the disciples never ask why. Some of my staff would say, why? What are you talking about? Are you out of your mind? Others would say, okay, and just go along and do it, you know. Um, But they never ask why. They just go ahead and do it. They went, they found a colt. In the street, tied at the doorway. They untied it. Some people said, what are you doing? That's a logical question. And they said, they answered as Jesus had told them. We're taking it to Jesus. We'll bring it back when they're done. And guess what? They let them have the colt. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? Well, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that tells us that this might happen. Zephaniah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So they knew that this was going to happen, that someone was going to come, someone significant, on the back of a foal, which would have been of a donkey or a horse. 
That seems a little counterintuitive because you think if the king is making his grand entrance, if the king is riding in, the king would ride in on something like this, a stallion. That's what the king would ride in, right? What do they bring the prince or, or the king or the queen of a parade in? What do they bring them in? What type of car? Nice, shiny sports car, right? Muscle car, Corvette, something like that, right? loud and noisy and bright and shiny. They don't bring it in in the car that you're trying to find for your high schooler who's just learning to drive that costs a thousand bucks, right? That's not what they bring them in in. But they knew that the deliverer was going to come in something a little bit different. And maybe that's why they just let this all unfold. So they brought him in and when they brought the coat to Jesus, they put their cloaks on top of it, um, and like, like a saddle, and he sat on it. And then many people spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches that were there in the fields. And if you know anything about the story, you know what's coming next. They went ahead and they shouted, Hosanna, which means God saves, God rescues. This comes from Psalm 118. And it was often something that the Jews would sing as they were coming into the city of Jerusalem. This was something they would sing every year. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're looking forward to this person who's going to come and save and rescue them from the Roman government. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna, God saves, God rescues, God delivers us in the name of the Lord. They believed the coming king would come from the line of David, which Jesus was from the line of David. His ancestry was traced all the way back to that time. Jesus arrives, and he, as he arrives, he walks into the temple area, into the temple courts, and he looked around at everything. He said, why did you highlight that, John? You'll see in just a moment why I highlighted it. But Jesus came in, kind of took a view of everything that was there, looked around, and then he just went home. And then he just went home. As I sat with that and thought about that a little bit, it just kind of stood out to me that Jesus wasn't in a hurry to get anything done. He wasn't in a hurry. His followers were a little bit in a hurry because they kept saying, Jesus, don't we need to tell everybody? Jesus, don't we need to let everybody know who you are? Jesus, don't we need to spill the, spread the good news? And Jesus was like, not yet, guys, not yet, not yet. Jesus was never in a hurry. He had this incredible sense of time. I don't know about you, but I'm always in a hurry. I'm always in a hurry. It gets me in trouble sometimes. But I'm not in a hurry just in life, but I, I can be in a hurry about my faith. I can be in a hurry when I know someone's going through a difficult time. And I'm like, God, can you please rescue this person? Can you please do something to turn their life around? It's so painful to watch them struggle and watch them. Can you please speed this up a little bit? I want God to do the same thing for me. I want God to change me. I don't want to have to keep going back to my wife over and over again about things that I know are struggles and I can't seem to break those habits or break those struggles and I just want God to change that in me. But God never seems to be in a hurry to solve problems. He always seems to have this amazing sense of timing and we're going to see that in just a few minutes. So Jesus goes back, goes to sleep, gets something to eat, comes out the next day. And the next day as he's coming, he's a little hungry. And so as he's coming in, he sees a fig tree um, in leaf, which means it's, it's got to, its leaves are there. And he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. 
obviously reason right it's not the season for figs fig trees in that day were pretty common very popular the the trees would bloom 12 months out of the year they would only have fruit nine months out of the year no fruit march april may no fruit on them that's likely when jesus was there and so then jesus said to the tree may no one ever eat fruit from you again and the disciples heard him say this and you're thinking what's up with jesus did he not sleep well you know was he a little upset at the disciples from the previous conversation when they were fighting over who was going to be in the front seat of the bus? You, you know, was he not half thrilled with the ride that they brought him the previous day to ride into Jerusalem, but he's supposed to know about that? Why is Jesus upset? So he utters this curse on this tree, and guess what? It comes true. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered, Rabbi, look, the tree, fig tree you've cursed has withered. What's up with the tree? Well, we'll come back to that as well. So Jesus comes to the same place he was the night before, into the temple courts. That's where he goes. What are the temple courts? Most of us don't have any kind of frame reference, so I want to try to give you a frame of reference about what this is like. So the first person who built the temple was a guy by the name of King Solomon, and he built this place. This is known as Solomon's Temple. And the big building in the middle is considered the Holy of Holies. It's the place that the high priest would go one time of year to offer sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation. On the outside is where the priests and the Jews were allowed to come in. You had to be a Jew to go into this space. That's where they would offer sacrifices um, for their sins. That's what would take place there. You can see this cutout. It shows the Holy of Holies inside where the priests would only go one time of year. Well, this temple was torn down... When the Jews were taken into captivity in 722 and later 586 B.C., and it was destroyed, it was completely leveled. In the 400s, a guy by the name of Zerubbabel came, and he started to rebuild the temple. And then when Herod was put in power, Herod wanted to make the Jews happy, and so he rebuilt the temple and then expanded the temple. And this is what it looked like when he did that. You can see the area in the middle is the section that he rebuilt, which had the Holy of Holies and the place the Jews were allowed in. But then he expanded it and built this area on the outside called the Court of the Gentiles. This is known as the Temple Courts. And this is where all the Gentiles would gather. The non-Jews could come and explore and experience and discover what this faith was all about. Who is this God of the heavens that the people of Israel worship? Who is Yahweh that they seem to follow? And Him alone, unlike every other nation that has multiple gods, why does this nation only worship just this one God? And so that's the place that they would come. And that place was known as the court of the Gentiles. And this is where Jesus is walking into. As Jesus is walking into this place, there is a lot going on in this setting. A lot going on. The first thing that's going on is everybody, every, every Jewish man is paying a tax. Um, you have on every year, you have this tax that you pay. It's like about 10 bucks, and you pay it to your, like your local township and to help support the public services. You know, this is a little bit like what that tax was. It was a half a shekel. Now, you can't cut a shekel in half, so you'd have to trade the shekel in to the Romans. They would then give you two coins. You would take one half, a coin that was worth half a shekel, and you would go pay your tax, and you get something stamped so you knew your tax was paid. This was happening in this area. 
There was another thing that was happening in this area. This is right before Passover. Passover was a time that every Jew was required to come to Jerusalem during this week, the two weeks before um, Passover would take place, and they would have to offer a lamb to pay for their sins for the whole year. That's what they would do. If they were too poor to do that, they would be allowed to use what was called a turtle dove or a small bird. So, if you're traveling from a distance away, say you're traveling from up north in Galilee, about 90 miles, you're not going to put your little baby lamb and, take, and carry your little baby lamb all the way 90 miles, are you? No. No, say no. You're not going to do that. Um, what you're going to do is you're going to take a little bit of money, some of your shekels, and you're going to go to the, to the temple courts. And what are you going to do in the temple courts? You're going to purchase a lamb. Historians tell us that in the week before Passover... There was over 250,000 lambs that were slaughtered in this area in the course of one week. Now, I don't know much about slaughtering animals. I've never slaughtered a lamb. I don't know much about that. My dad slaughtered a cow in my backyard when I was a, little, when I was a kid, and I still have traumatic memories about it hanging from my swing set. You know, But that's another story for another time. That's all I know about slaughtering animals. But 250,000 lambs, that's a lot of little baby lambs but it was part of the sacrificial system that had been set up for the people of israel to have a visual reminder that their sin was a barrier to god and it was going to require a perfect lamb to take away all of their sins and so so you've got the picture now? There's mobs of people packed in this area. They're exchanging money. There's lambs. There's turtle doves. There's smell. There's poop. There's food. And there's sacrifice. All of this is happening in this whole area. And Jesus walks in. He walked in the day before. He saw all this craziness unfolding. And He walked away. But today, he walks in again. And what does he do on this day? He began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry any merchandise through the temple courts. Jesus went berserk. He went Stallone or Schwarzenegger on him. I mean, he just turned the place upside down. He flipped the tables over. He tossed the money everywhere. He let the animals out of the pen. He let the doves flying everywhere. I mean, it was utter chaos. It was utter chaos. That's what was going on in this setting. So why did Jesus do this? Why did he do this? Well, in the midst of all of this, he makes this statement. He says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What is Jesus talking about? What is he saying? Well, that outer court area, the court of the Gentiles, remember, it was the only place that non-Jews were allowed to enter to explore, discover, try to find out who the Creator was who the God of the Jews was. They couldn't go into the holy place, but they could go in there. 
And the Jews had taken the one place for them to learn about the one true God, and they had converted into a loud, noisy, for-profit marketplace. That's what had happened. Any chance that a Gentile could wander in there and potentially find out who the creator of the universe was and who made them? Not likely. Not likely. And that really wasn't God's design. It wasn't his design. In Isaiah 56, the prophet Isaiah says this, Let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord or wants to know about the Lord say, The Lord's going to exclude me from the people. He said, If someone wants to know, they should not say, There's no way for me to learn about him. And the foreigners, in verse 8, who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain. That's Jerusalem. Remember, it sits up on a mountain. And give them joy in my house and prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifice will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for who? Just the Jews? No. A house of prayer for who? All the nations. You see, this place, this space was designed for anyone to come. Anyone, regardless of their past, regardless of the story, regardless of their experience, anyone who was outside of the Jewish community, if they wanted to explore who God was, this was their place to come. And Jesus modeled that in his life and ministry. Jesus didn't just go to good Jews and help them. Jesus went to the crippled. Jesus went to the foreigners. Jesus went to the people who were injured. Jesus went to those who were close to death. Jesus went to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And he offered them hope. He offered them compassion. He offered them healing. You see, in the culture of that day, the temple had become a nationalistic symbol for the Jews of who they were. And they were the only ones allowed in. And everyone else had to stay outside. To be allowed in, you had to act like a Jew. You had to behave like a Jew. You had to be circumcised like the Jews were. You had to believe like a Jew. And then you were allowed in. But that's not what God intended. He intended for His house, for His place of worship, to be a place for everyone, a place for anyone to come in. He then goes on to call it in the very end, he calls it a den of of robbers he calls it a den of robbers and it's not because they were cheating people when they were exchanging money some have suggested well they were exchanging money and they were cheating and they were charging more money for these things i don't think that's the reason jesus flipped the place upside down you know when you think of a den of robbers when you think of a of a robber's lair you think of a place that people who steal people who take people who take from others and they go to this place and they celebrate what they've done Jesus is saying to them that their place of worship had become just that. Their place of worship was for a select group of people who did what they were supposed to do, and they came in and celebrated that, and they disregarded everything else that was going on. They ignored all of those things and disregarded them. They thought, as long as they offer sacrifices, as long as they come to church, as long as they give a little bit, it doesn't matter if they ignore the poor. It doesn't matter if they ignore the widows. It doesn't matter if they mistreat people. They were Jews, and they were okay. And Jesus says, that's not okay. That's not okay. So back to the fig tree. Back to the fig tree. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree? 
The fig tree looked good on the outside, didn't it? Right? It had leaves, looked nice. But the fig tree was producing no fruit. And I think the fig tree was a metaphor for what the nation of Israel had become. It looked good on the outside. It was performing. It was doing all the things it should be doing. But inside, there was nothing productive. There was nothing life-changing. There was nothing that was giving them, that was giving people hope and life. And Jesus said, there's no place for it. And he cursed it. There's no place for it here. He says, you've made it a den of robbers. It really challenges us to ask ourselves the question, will we be a place that anyone is welcome, regardless of their story? The, the temple, the Jews, had made it a place of commerce. They had made it so that people that were not like them were not allowed in. And Jesus says, no, this is a place for all the nations, regardless of your story, regardless of your past, regardless of your pain, regardless of what life has looked like for you, for you to come through those doors. Paul said it this way a little bit later. Um, he said this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He said we shouldn't make it hard for people who are turning to God. It's one of the reasons that we gave you these cards. Um, because we want you to invite people who um, might not know God to come and join us. And you're looking around this morning, you're like, uh, John, do you realize this room's kind of full? Yeah, we do. We do. There's room in the other two services. We encourage you to check those out if you are able to do that. Um, we're going to have an overflow space. But we believe that there are people in our communities that need to hear the life-changing message of the gospel, that need to hear the truth about who Jesus is, that need to hear all of those things. And that's why we're encouraging you to do this. But before we go out of these doors, we need to take a moment and pause and do some internal assessment. Do some internal assessment. Because there's a couple metaphors that Jesus used in this story. The first one is he looked at the fig tree. It looks good on the outside. Everybody thinks it's okay, but it's not producing any fruit. There's nothing good coming from it. You're paying the bills. You're taking care of your family. The house looks good. But there's nothing that's mattering for eternity that's happening in your life. You're not investing in people. Is that true of you this morning? They were the money changers. They provided a service. But they weren't making it easy for people to come to God. And, and maybe you're walking through the doors. You're doing church things. You're doing good things. You're doing religious people stuff. They were doing stuff. They were serving people. But it wasn't making a difference for people to come to God. Their hearts weren't in it. Their hearts were only in it for what they could get out of it. The last group were the religious leaders. They were trying to make sure everyone does it the way it has always been done. Maybe you're comfortable with your life. Maybe you don't want to disrupt your life. You don't want to change your life. You don't want to introduce messy into your nice, clean, tidy world. That's what the religious leaders were. They didn't want Jesus coming in, messing up their nice, clean, tidy world world and jesus said the temple is not a place for nice and clean and tidy it's a people it's a place for people who are brokenhearted it's a place for people that are searching it's a place for people who are looking for answers and hope that's what this place is supposed to be about and so as we prepare for the easter this year 
We want CCC to be a place where everyone is welcome. Where anyone is welcome. And you say, why are we inviting more people in? Even when our room is full, why are we inviting more people in? We're inviting people in because we believe that when they come through these doors and they hear the life-changing message of the gospel, that Jesus can change everything. And we're going to talk more about that next week. And so I want to challenge you this week, next week, for the next four to five weeks, to be praying and saying, God, who do you want me to invite to come here? But I want to add a little bit to this challenge, because Jesus' challenge was that the place of worship was to be for all the nations, not just for people just like them. And so my challenge for you is to say, who is God going to direct you to who is different than you who needs to be here with us in five weeks? Who's different than you? Someone who's a different race than you. Someone who's a different religion than you. Someone who is a different political party than you. Someone who has different view of sexuality than you. Someone who has a different view of gender than you. Someone who is different than you. You see, that's what Jesus offers. That's what Jesus wanted His place of worship to be about. Doors that are wide open. Arms that are wide open. Welcoming everyone in. Because there's the potential that they could be changed by Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer this morning? God, I thank you for every person who shows up here week after week and calls CCC their church home. And Lord, as we see the people that you're bringing through our doors every week, um, everybody has a story. And many have come curious, looking, longing for something more, not always sure exactly what that is. And yet, you, God, you have challenged us and you have pushed us and said, my, my plan for you is not just to get comfortable, not just to fill up the seats, not just to look good on the outside, but my plan is for you to make this a place whose arms are open wide for everyone that needs Jesus. And Lord, I don't know whose path you're going to take me across in these next four to five weeks, but I pray that my heart would be open, my ears would be open, my eyes would be open and say, God, who is it that you're going to invite? You want me to tap on the shoulder and say, hey, would you consider coming? And I believe that for those who are here in this room that call CCC their church home, or even just are here checking us out, that you've got someone that their path is going to cross. And they're going to feel a nudge from your spirit, and they're going to say, they're going to reach in their pocket and pull that card out, or reach in their purse or their, their coat pocket and pull that card out and say, hey, would you consider coming and worshiping and joining me on Easter? God, we believe that you have a plan to use us to continue to make a difference in this community and for this place to be a place where Jesus is celebrated, he is worshiped as the one true king for anyone who walks through our doors.